and I, my wife and I, love coming over to Moody's Burn, and um, she's sorry that she wasn't able to come today. She picked up COVID and had one clear test last night, but apparently you need two 24 hours apart before you can meet the world again. So uh, she hasn't come today, and I haven't seen her for about a week, so uh, she locked herself away. So. Anyway, um, what does a guy speak on on Mother's Day uh, is, is the question that I asked myself and uh, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think the last time I was here I spoke on the church uh, in uh, the founding of the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So. Um, just want to look at one or two passages in Corinthians, and uh, today at least I want to look at 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give my body uh, to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dis dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes always perseveres love never fails but where there are prophecies they will cease and where there are tongues they will be stilled where there is knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part but when completeness comes what is in part disappears when i was a child I talked like a child and I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put uh, the ways of childhood behind me. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Just a prayer, Lord, we pray for your help. Uh, John tells us that God is love, and uh, we know that love then uh, characterizes everything about you. Even your holiness is a loving holiness. And your justice is a loving justice. Uh, we thank you that you are love, the epitome of love. And we realize that as Christians, those who've come to know Jesus, um, 
as our Savior and are endeavoring to follow him as the Lord of our lives. We know that we are called upon to reflect something of your love in the way that we interact with each other and in the way that we interact with people in society at large. And we know that we fail miserably radiating and communicating the beauty and the loveliness that we see in our Saviour. So we pray that you'll help us and we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us and we pray that today we'll be helpful in our onward journey of becoming more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, if you sent a Mother's Day card, which uh, I did, but it's going to arrive late, unfortunately. Um, if you sent a Mother's Day card, there's a good possibility that a statement from this chapter was found somewhere on that Mother's Day card. Because when we think about our mothers, certainly when I think about my mother, um, I, this is one of the qualities that I do think about. I think about her love uh, for us as a family and her love for her children, which um, is remarkable sometimes when I sit back and look at it it's, uh, and, and watch it and think about and think about it in relation to how our siblings operate and function and fall out and fall in. But her love remains constant. I've, no, I've noticed that. And uh, she, want, she loves all of us equally and wants us to love each other. And uh, it's, I, there's a, I've learned a lot just by watching the love of my own mother. And I'm sure uh, that is true of many, many mothers and perhaps every mother. There is a love for their children. And of course, the fact that uh, a text from this chapter in the Bible was found on the Mother's Day card that you sent to your mother is not wrong. Um, and and it's, it, it's not unexpected, but uh, this chapter needs to be kept in its context if it's going to make the most sense and if we're going to get the most from it. And the context of this chapter is, rather than this being a warm and fuzzy sort of chapter that makes us all feel warm and fuzzy on the inside and we can all hold hands and stand in a big circle and tell each other that we love each other, and that wouldn't be wrong. A little strange for some of us who are men, maybe, but it wouldn't be wrong. But what this chapter actually is, is a stick of dynamite at the very heart of the problems that the church at Corinth were facing. Because this church in Corinth was plagued with difficulties. There was breakdown in relationships. There was a fragmentation of its membership. There were little groups. There was the Peter group, the Paul group, the Apollos group. And then, of course, there was the Jesus group. Uh, who didn't really need anyone or anything. They just went direct to Jesus um, and, and didn't recognize any kind of spiritual leadership. And you've got all these little groups, and, and, and which is fine that you have your favorite preacher and you like hearing your favorite preacher, but the problem in this church is that um, they were off Paul. They were off Apollos and they were off Peter. It was like, you know, unless you were in our group, unless you were part of... Uh, Peter's group, you really were disregarded and disrespected. And, and there was just a breakdown of relationships within this church. 
Um, the other thing that's going on in this church is that there was um, gifted individuals within it who were cherishing inflated ideas of their own importance, who just were in love with themselves, who thought they were fabulous. And they just looked down their nose at everybody else. And uh, they thought church was about them. And of course, Paul writes to address that in, in a variety of ways um, within in, in this book. But what he does here in this chapter is he, I think, comes to the climax of his argument and his dealing with the struggles that the Corinthian church had. I think this is the very climax of this letter. I think what he does in this chapter is he tells us, you know, the distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Jesus is not that they are brilliant with particular gifts. The distinguishing characteristic of a follower of Jesus is that they love God and they love people. And some of you folks in the church at Corinth you don't love each other and you don't love people. You love yourself and you love your group. But that's not what marks a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And I think the matter of Christian love is much more important than many of us uh, would appreciate. Jesus himself said, so this was of course uh, the, the inaugurator of the new covenant. And we are the new covenant people of God. You know what Jesus said? He said, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That's the distinguishing mark of a disciple, that they love each other. Not that their heads are so full of theology that they can hardly stand upright. Not that they are amazingly gifted in, 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 in a sheer abundance of ways. The distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Primarily is that they love other disciples. There's a family relationship which is undeniable. Despite the clarity of the statement by Jesus and the fact that Paul undoubtedly would have passed it on to the uh, Christians in Corinth, these Christians in Corinth did not love each other. And if they did, they had a very strange way of showing it. Now I want to draw your attention to this passage partly because it's Mother's Day and mothers are often thought of as creatures who love. Um, but I want to draw your attention to it because I realise as I go on in life um, what a difference Christian love would make in our homes. I'm weary of, uh, of talking to husbands and wives who just treat each other with contempt don't love each other the way that a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. If husbands would love their wives, how different Christian homes would be. And in our churches, what a difference it would make if God's people actually lived this. Church would look phenomenally different than it currently does if we loved each other. And I'm I, I have sensed nothing but love here and I don't know anything about any sort of the politics of Woody Sporn. So don't think for one minute that I'm trying to get at you. I'm just talking about church in general. I just think love often is the missing ingredient. It's often the missing ingredient and within society at large. 
not just our homes, not just our churches, but in our interaction with the world. Well, let me give you a very quick assessment or overview of the first three verses. In verse 1, the point that Paul is making is that without love, I produce nothing. Without love, I produce nothing. I might be able to do many wonderful things. I might be able to speak in all of the languages that are spoken throughout the world. And I might even be able to speak the language which is spoken by the angels in heaven, if indeed there is such a thing. I've met people who think it's Hebrew. I've met people who think it's Gaelic. If there is such a thing as an, a language spoken by angels, even if I could speak that language, if what I do is not couched and framed in love, then I'm nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. See, you know how sharp and cutting this is? A person may be a good preacher, but if they're not a lover, if they don't love people, Paul is saying here, you might as well bang a cymbal for half an hour on a Sunday morning. You'd get as much from it. That's the starkness of this. So without love, he says in verse 1, I produce nothing. And then in verse 2, he says, without love, I am nothing. Without love, I am nothing. So I may have the gift of declaring the word of God. I may have the most amazing understanding of the word of God, the gift of knowledge. I might have faith, incredible faith, faith that takes on things that no one else would take on. Maybe enough faith to ask a mountain to move from one location to another. But if I do not have love, then I am nothing. That's what Paul says in verse 2. I am nothing without love, even if I have all of these amazing gifts. If I don't have love, I am nothing. The word could be translated zero and you can have as many zeros as you like in a row but unless you've got some sort of numeric value at the front of them it, they all amount even if they go on ad infinitum zero 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 if you don't have love at the beginning then it all amounts to zero so without love i produce nothing even though i may be able to speak Languages spoken by the angels in heaven. Without love, I am nothing, even though I might be incredibly gifted. And thirdly, he makes the point that without love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. See, some of these individuals thought, well, if I do this, would God be impressed? Surely this impresses God. I'll give away half of my goods to the poor. God will be impressed with that, won't he? Or I'll give my body over to hardship. Won't that impress God? And, uh, or in some of the translations, and it could, I guess, loosely be translated, give my body to be burned at the stake. Wouldn't God be impressed with that? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't that be impressive? Wouldn't I gain something when I meet God? Paul says, no, not really. Not unless it was motivated by love. Love for God and love for people. So, there it is, in the first three verses, what Paul does is he establishes the importance of love. You can't get around it. Jesus stated it. Paul makes it abundantly clear in the first three verses of this chapter. And then at the end of verse three, you're left asking the question, okay, so love's important then. We get that. We realize that we're nothing without it. We can accomplish nothing without it. So 
Then we're left asking the question, well, what is love? I mean, what is it just warm, gushy feelings? What does love really look like? And that's what he goes on to answer from verses 4 right through to the beginning of verse 8. And uh, there are 15 descriptive terms used to describe um, love. Um, 15 descriptive uh, uh, terms. If you think of love as a diamond, then these are the 15 facets of this diamond uh, called love. And there are many ways in which you could read this chapter. We've read it, love is patient, love is kind. But you could read it like this. Jesus is patient. And Jesus is kind. And uh, Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not rude. And Jesus is not easily angered. But the big challenge for me is, um, could I ever read it by putting my own name in there? Could I say, Robert is patient. Robert is kind, and uh, Robert is not selfish. Robert is not rude. Robert is not easily angered. The other thing which is worth noticing about this chapter is that all of these uh, verbs are in the present continuous tense, and uh, I don't bore you with the technical details of the of the language used but just to say this that if they're in the continuous tense then I am to be these things all of the time it's not that I can say oh well, today I'm going to be patient um, but tomorrow I'm going to be kind now, I'll not be thinking about patience tomorrow tomorrow is kindness day today is patience day well that's that that's not on <laughs> that's not on offer we are to be all of these things all of the time because this is a description of the love which marks a disciple or a follower of um, Jesus. It's a kaleidoscope of the qualities um, that are to be the habit or the habit, yes, the habit of our lives. So I don't have any points and I'm not going to try and get through all 15 of these descriptive terms. So uh, please don't panic. Um, but I want to look at a few of them with you and then uh, we'll be finished. So, the first thing that he tells us is that love is patient. Love is patient. The love which marks a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Someone who's come and put their faith and trust in Christ. They've asked God for forgiveness. They've asked God to become part of their lives and they're now uh, following Jesus as his followers. He's Lord of their lives. Well, the love that this is this is the love that is to mark uh, these disciples of Jesus. They are to be patient. Love suffereth long. It says in the authorized version. I like that translation. It's a little um, older, but it, it's a great translation of this. The word that's used here, which is uh, makrothemeo. Love suffereth long. It suffers long. And it's used mostly in connection with people. Love puts up with people for a long time. It takes time before it begins to smolder and fume and then burst into flames. It has a long fuse, not a short fuse. And some of us are a bit like fireworks, if we're honest. 
You know, if someone likes our touch paper, we're liable to explode all over the place. We have no patience. People have to tiptoe around us because if they say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, then we could blow up without any notice. And we may be great speakers. And we may give a lot to church funds. We may be gifted in a thousand different ways, but the truth is we're not patient. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is patient. And the word which is used for patience here, Chrysostom, uh, a, a, a commentator who wrote a, a commentary on Corinthians many, many years and centuries ago, said, it speaks of a man or woman who's been wronged and has the opportunity to avenge themselves, but they choose not to. So somebody's been, somebody has been wronged and they have an opportunity to get even. Well, the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is patient and it means that they choose not to get even because they put up with people for a long time. I wonder if you've ever been wronged and in response, been tempted to get even, share a little news about that person to others that will let kind of bring them down to earth in that person's uh, eyes or in, in, their in their thinking. Well, uh, Paul says love doesn't operate that, that way. Love is patient. It puts up with people. It doesn't fly off the handle at the first uh, given opportunity. Now, just in case you think these Corinthians will be sitting and listening in church to this letter being read out on a Sunday morning, and they'll be just lapping this up and saying, this is phenomenal. This is just fantastic philosophy. This went against everything that they had been taught from their childhood upwards. The great, the great Aristotle taught that the great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury. Instead, one should strike back immediately for the slightest offense. That's what Greeks had been taught from their infancy up at school. Don't tolerate insult or injury. Strike back immediately for the slightest offense or injury. Paul writes them and says, I don't care about your culture. And I don't care about your philosophers, Aristotle. I don't care less what he said. I'm here to tell you that the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is patient. Love acts as Jesus acted. How did Jesus act? When he was reviled, he reviled not in return, but he committed his cause to him who judges justly. Jesus could have destroyed those who mocked him on the cross, but instead he turned to one of them and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. To others, he cried to the father and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Patience. God is patient, isn't he? It's one of God's great uh, character traits, patience. Look at how patient he has been with you. I can think about how patient he has been with me. How many opportunities has he given you to become a Christian if you're not a Christian? How patient God is with you. And how patient God has been with me. And I am a Christian, but God has been incredibly patient with me. Like I would have thrown the book at me years ago. 
for sure, but God is patient and long-suffering and has put up with me and has sought to mold me and shape me and change me into the person that's a bit more like Jesus. I heard about Robert Ingersoll. Uh, he was a, an atheist and he was uh, invited to a public debate with a Christian at the time. The Christian's uh, name was Theodore Parker. The debate was to be taking place in London. Ingersoll stood up first and gave his rant about the fact that there was no God. And uh, at the end of his speech, he says, and I will give God three minutes to strike me down dead if he exists. And then he sat down and watched the clock. And then Parker was invited to get up and respond. Theodore Parker got up and he said, did the gentleman honestly think? that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God in three minutes. God is patient. And he wants his people to be patient. How patient are we? Love is patient. Love is kind. If patience will take anything from anyone, then kindness will give anything to anyone. Be kind is to be useful, it's to be of service, it's to be gracious. Kindness is to be active in goodwill towards others. It not only feels generous, it is generous. It desires other people's welfare, it works towards their good. Many things I think will be forgotten, but I don't think people will forget your kindness easily. I think people will forget how intelligent you are. I think people will forget how humorous you are, but I don't think people will forget your kindness. Some people in this fellowship have been incredibly kind to me and I'll never forget it. And we don't forget kindness easily. I can still remember when my father picked up tuberculosis, pneumonia and pleurisy all in one sweep and almost died. He was in hospital for several months when I was a teenager in my early teens. I can still remember the women that came and took our washing and washed it and dried it and ironed it and brought it back to us ready to wear. I can still remember the, the women because my mother was traveling to hospital every day about 50 miles from home to sit with my father not knowing if he would live or die. And he did live, thankfully. But I can still remember the women that, that cooked us meals and brought them for us to eat so that my mother wouldn't have to cook when she came home from hospital. I'll never forget the kindness of those people. I've forgotten the bright sparks that sat beside me in theological college. I, I don't even know where some of them are, but I'll never forget. I could tell you the names of those ladies. All these years later, how kind are we? This is striking a blow at the very heart of the problems at the church at Corinth because God's people in Corinth knew nothing about the ministry of kindness. Most of them were only out for themselves. Don't get me wrong, the services in the church in Corinth were amazing. I mean, they had preachers like Apollos, whose eloquence and knowledge of the Old Testament was incomparable. You can pick that up in the book of Acts. Apollos, gifted in a multitude of different ways. But Paul is writing and he's saying, what good is all of that? What good is all of this giftedness and these amazing services? If you're not kind to one another 
And I guess we ask ourselves the question, what does it matter if you get straight A's in your hires or in your nat fives? What does it matter if you are the best businessman or woman in town? If people have no record of you as would relate to kindness and all that you've left behind you is a trail of badness and bitterness and grumpiness. Despite how clearly this is stated, God's people are anything but kind to each other. Some of the things that we do, but more importantly, some of the things that we say to one another and about one another is anything but kind. It is instead very cruel. And it might seem funny at the time, but here's what I want you to think about. When that person goes away and thinks about what, what has been said either about them or to them, Will it reduce them to tears? I, I anyway, I'm not going to share anything more about that. I, I was walking past a car one day, and a teenager was just bawling at her mother, bawling at her mother. I walked on um, to the, my own car and got into it. And I'll be honest, I knew that I knew the, the people. As I walked and got into my car, I said to myself. Where did she learn how to talk to her mother like that? Where did she learn how to talk to her mother like that? Maybe from her father. We're not kind to each other, but the love which marks a disciple of Jesus is kind. Well, love does not envy. That is the third thing that, that we're told. Love does not envy. Envy. There are two kinds of envy, aren't there? So there's an envy which just wants what other people has. So, um, you know, I see one of Elon Musk's electric cars pulling up beside me at the lights, and all of a sudden my beaten up machine is no longer good. I'd like one of those. They would be nice. No, no filling up at the petrol station. Uh, that would, but I don't really need it. That's the truth. I just want what someone else has. I want what's, and that's envy. But then there's another kind of envy which I think was a problem in the church at Corinth. It's not so much that you want, and, and this was a problem in the church at Corinth, that the, the first kind of envy they wanted. So Mr. Singer wanted to be Mr. Preacher. Mr. Singer wanted Mr. Preacher's gift. And the, the people who were teaching Sunday school, they weren't happy teaching Sunday school, even though they could keep a, children, a group of children mesmerized and spellbound as they told them the story of the gospel. They wanted some other gift in the church. And people weren't happy with who they were and what God had made them. And everybody wants what everyone else has. No one's content to be themselves for God. That's one problem in the church of Corinth. The other problem in the church of Corinth was this, that it wasn't so much that there were people who wanted it, uh, other people's gifts or their possessions. It was more that they didn't want other people to have something that they didn't have. There's a great story about this in the, the life of Solomon. Two women had a baby each. One baby died and, and, in, and, then, they brought, and then they started to fight over the, lie, the living baby. It's my baby. No, no, it's my baby. And then they brought it to Solomon. And I certainly hope that 
I certainly hope that Solomon, although he's not the perfect character that we sometimes think he was, but um, I certainly hope that Solomon wasn't seriously going to cut the babies in two, the baby in two, but he says, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll cut the baby in two. You can have half and you can have half. And then it's all settled. Well, you know, the mother who loved the baby said, oh no, don't do that. But the woman who didn't want the baby, just didn't want someone else having something that she didn't have, said, yeah, that's a great, great idea. See, it's destructive. And that's the problem in the church. In, in, in Corinth, there's this destructive envy where people want, want what other people have and, and, or, or don't want them to have something that I don't have. Destructive. When will the Christian church ever grow up and realize that we are the body of Christ and that the hand is not expected to be the foot and the eye is not expected to be the tongue or the ear we all have a different role to play we don't have to be envious of each other God wants us just to be ourselves for him just ourselves nothing more than that well here is the the the, the fourth thing love does not boast bragging is the other side of jealousy isn't it Bragging is trying to make others jealous of who we are and what we have. But love doesn't operate like that. Uh, love, I think the authorised version, and some of you might be here reading it, says it vaunteth not itself. It doesn't parade itself around. Uh, the loving person who is successful doesn't seek a platform upon which to parade their own, own accomplishments. Look at me. Am I fabulous? Don't you just love me? And within the church in Corinth, there were a number of show-offs going around. In chapter 4, verse 7, he asked the question, who made you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Who made me different from anyone else? God made me different from you. And God made you different from me. And uh, what do I have that I did not receive? Nothing. God could take everything I have away in a flash. Before I get down from this pulpit, I could be silenced and I will never speak again. Everything I have has been given to me from God. So why in the world would I boast about it? God has given us the opportunities that we have in this culture and society. God gives us everything and God can take it all away in, in, in an instant. And it's so foolish to boast. So foolish to boast. Some of our heads are so big, it's a wonder we can stand upright. Uh, find a point of equilibrium which allows us to stand upright. I heard about a, ch a, a young preacher sitting in church one morning and the great D.L. Moody slipped in in front of him. He couldn't believe it. Whole service, he's waiting for the service to end so that he could say something wise to Moody. And uh, he says to Moody at the end of the service, Moody gets up to go and he kind of stops and the whole high Mr. Moody. Moody, uh, and, and uh, he says, uh, would you pray for me, he says to Mr. Moody. Mr. Moody says, well, what do you want me to pray for? He says, would you pray that God will keep me humble? Uh, I'm a young preacher, and uh, he says, would you pray that God will keep me humble? He says, what in the world would you have to be proud about? Shouldn't it be hard to be humble? <laughs> Love acts like the... The master acted. It's willing to take up the mantle of servant. 
Love is willing to take the lowly position. Love is not full of itself. Love knows why it has, what it has, and gives all the glory to God. Love does not boast. Love isn't proud. The word here is fusiuta. I often think it would uh, be a wonderful name for, uh, for, for sushi, I, I think. Fusiuta, it just sounds so appetizing, doesn't it? Um, Phillips's paraphrase of this says, Love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love is not proud. Love instead is marked by humility. Uh, and yet humility was conspicuous by its absence in the church at Corinth. There, it seems that there were some in the church at Corinth who thought that they had reached perfection already. And they were thinking, certainly thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to have had. They could have written the book Humility and How I Attained It. They were utterly bereft of the humility that marks God's servants. They were the polar opposite to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? They sent a delegation down from Jerusalem to ask, are you the one, John? Are you the one that's been spoken of throughout the Old Testament? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? No, he says, I'm not the one. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal straps of the person that is the one. He could have seized the moment and said, no, but I'm the, I'm the forerunner of the person who's... But I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps. Humility. Humility. Love is not proud. We live in a world that exalts people that have inflated ideas of, the, of themselves. And it's hard. I think it's hard not to get caught up with the same mentality. But arrogance has a big head. Love has a big heart. And there's a huge difference in both. Be humble as you interact with each other. Let me just, two more, and I'm, I'm going to finish at that. Two more. So, um, one is love is not rude. Love is not rude. It doesn't behave indecently or in a shameful manner. Love is good manners. It doesn't embrace what is dishonorable or disgraceful. There's a graciousness about Christian love which never forgets that courtesy and tact and politeness are lovely things. Bishop Lightfoot said of one of his students, let him go where he will, his face will be a sermon in itself. You couldn't say that about many preachers, eh? His face will be a sermon in itself. Rudeness had become the trademark of the church in Corinth. Nearly everything they did had been was marked by unbecoming behavior. At the love feasts, the so-called love feasts, the rich would show up first. And they wouldn't wait for the poor who were servants and slaves to be released from their duties to join the services. They wouldn't wait for that. They, they'd show up first. And this is how it was in society, that the rich always went first. And then the poor could gather up the, the dregs that were left behind. And, and that's what was happening at the so-called Christian love feasts. The rich showed up, feasted until they were full, and drank themselves until they were drunk. And then the, the poor folks could come along and gather up what, what remained. And Paul writes and says, well, that may be how it functions in the world, but it's not how it functions in the church. Because every person is equal in the church, loved by the same God with the same love. And you're no more important because you're rich. And you're no less important because you're poor. 
This is the family of God, Paul writes to them and says. The truth is some Christians are a disgrace in the way that they conduct themselves and some of the things that they have said and some of the things that they have done means that they could never possibly witness to their neighbours or their work colleagues because the behaviour that has gone before would undermine any attempt that they would make to witness. But love is not rude and love has got good manners. I heard about Professor Stuart Blackie. He was a Christian lecturer at Edinburgh University back in the days when rhetoric was a subject and uh, oratory was a subject that was taught at the university. So you give a speech. Well, Stuart Blackie was teaching his students how to read poems. I don't know whether it was um, Pleasures or like whatever, Kurui, uh, Kauring, Timmering, Beastie, or whatever it was. Um, anyway, he says, take the book that you're reading from in your right hand and project your voice uh, from your from the, from your your tummy, not from your nose or from your throat. So they took the book, starting to read. Then one student took the book in his left hand. Stuart Blackie thundered down the lecture hall. I told you to take the book in your right hand. Can you hear? Well, he held up his right arm and it ended at his wrist. Stuart Blackie went straight down to him and put his arm around him and said in the hearing of everybody, I am deeply sorry. I had no idea and I should have been much more respectful than I was. Please forgive me. That story was being told in Charlotte Chapel as a sermon illustration some years later. And at the end of the sermon, a young man jumped up at the front of the church and, and he held up his arm and it ended at his wrist. And he said, I was that young man that that story was about. And he said, Professor Blackie eventually led me to faith in Christ. But he said he could never have done it if he had not put the wrong right. He could never have done it if he had not put the wrong right. Love is not rude. Just one more. Let me jump forward to one which I think is incredibly important. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's a bookkeeping term, logizomai. You can almost log logizomai. You can tell, tell it's a bookkeeping term. It speaks about keeping a record of all the wrongs that you've suffered. The kind of person who walks through life with a permanent chip on their shoulder. Some people carry their grievances everywhere they go and probably right to the very grave. But what Paul says about Christian love, and this is not easy, is that love keeps no record of wrongs. Some people are amazing. When the opportunity arises for them to give voice to their grievances, it, 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 it's as if they've been keeping a record for years and it just comes pouring out every wrong that they've ever suffered. Well, love does not forgive and forget. Let's be honest. Love remembers. But love chooses still to forgive. Love is a bit like the prodigal father not the prodigal son. The prodigal father who went out looking for his son every day, living in the far off country, spending his inheritance, longing for his son to come back. 
And the elder brother says to the dad, are you going out to look for that wretch again today? I mean, won't you give up on him? No, I'll never give up on him. And yes, I am going out to look for him. And I'll go on looking for him until this son who is lost is found, until this son who is dead to me is alive again and returns. And he goes out and he sees him a long way off and he runs to him. No, will he accept me? Won't he accept me? He runs to him and throws his arms around this boy who has made a mess of his life and turned his back on his dad and brings him home and puts robes on his back and rings on his finger and sandals on his feet and celebrates this boy who has been a wretch living all kinds of wild lifestyle in the far country because that's the kind of God he is. You think, well, I could never become a Christian. God would never accept me. That whole story is that God will accept you. He's a God who is characterized by love, the depths of which you have never understood, the height of which, the breadth of his love. Nobody has comprehended the love of God. But God wants his people to reflect that love. And uh, I hope that you come to know the love of God. Uh, that you are come to know the forgiveness of God for your sins, and that your sins, though they are many, are all washed away. I hope that you come into a right relationship with God, because this loving God invites you to come to him even this morning. But if you're a Christian, then we're called on to reflect his love uh, in our homes, husband and wife. That's a challenge, isn't it? I'm grumpy for sure, I can tell you. I can roll in here with a smile on my face, but I can be fairly grumpy when I need to be. <laughs> but I ought not to be. <laughs> God wants us to reflect his love in our homes, husbands and wives, mums and dads, brothers and sisters, in our churches. God wants the skeptical world to look in and see these people actually care deeply about each other. They love each other, these Christian people. This is not a dog-eat-dog -dog world in here. These folk care deeply about each other. And in society, as we interact with them, may they see something of the loveliness of God's love in us. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I'm not going to stay for um, refreshments today because... My grandmother uh, died and is being buried tomorrow morning in the Republic of Ireland, so I need to shoot home and gather up uh, my belongings and crew and hit, head straight for the boat, so the ferry. So uh, I hope that you'll forgive me for that. It's not that I don't want to come in. I always enjoy the chat and the uh, chance to spend time with you. But thanks for your kind attention this morning, and uh, the Lord bless you abundantly.